morning, church. It's good to be together. It's good to worship God together. If you've got a Bible with you, go ahead and open it up to Philippians. And we are starting this new series, as you saw a moment ago, titled uh, Mission Together, studying through one of my favorite books in the entire Bible, the book of Philippians. It's a short letter, but it packs a huge punch. I mean, it's only 104 verses in this little letter that Paul wrote to the church at Philippi, but it contains some of the richest, most classic statements of the faith. So, for example, if you've heard some of this before, maybe growing up in church or being around God's Word, some of these texts might be familiar. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it, or for me to live is Christ and to die is gain, or at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, or I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, or my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory, or be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication present your requests, or whatever is true and noble and lovely, meditate on these things and the God of peace will be with you. It's just It's packed with concentrated, rich, life-transforming truth for our lives. It's interesting because, you know, this is a letter that Paul writes, the Apostle Paul writes from prison, and yet one of the primary threads throughout the entire letter is joy and rejoicing. Sixteen times, just four chapters, sixteen times he's using some form of the word joy or rejoicing. And I think that there's, um, there's backstory in, in Philippians that I believe helps us appreciate some of the truths that are nested in this letter. There's a relationship that goes back between Paul and this church at Philippi. It began 10 years before he writes this, this letter when a, a four-man uh, church planting team walked into Philippi, walked into northern Greece and brought the message of the gospel into Europe for the first time. This is the day that the gospel planted its flag in the soil of the West, in European soil. I heard a a program many years ago on NPR, and they would collect a group of scholars, uh, historians, and they would sit down this panel of historians, and they would ask them, what what would happen if this didn't happen? So, so it's sort of their job to put together the, the moment in which that thing occurred and to try to extrapolate from that what might have happened if that turning point hadn't taken place. And at one point, several years ago, the, the panel was asked this question, what would have happened if the Apostle Paul hadn't taken Christianity west into northern Greece? And there was this pregnant pause And one of the historian scholars leaned forward into the microphone and said, well, that changes everything. (laughs) That's the beginning of the church at Philippi. 1,969 years ago affected your life if you're in this room and you've trusted in Jesus. Your life is not disconnected to that story when the apostle Paul and a guy named Silas, he's the guy who's singing hymns with Paul in jail in Acts chapter 16, and then a guy named Luke, and he's the one who writes the gospel that bears his name. He's also the one who writes the book of Acts, so he's written more of the New Testament than, than Paul. And then a guy, a young pastor in training named Timothy, who receives two personal correspondences that we get to, to peer into in First and Second Timothy. That's the sort of dream team, church planting team that goes into Philippi in 49 AD and they share the gospel and the rest is history. 
And we're going to see some of the, the relationship that's so evident in Paul's heart and in his mind as he writes to these people. And as that team left, and you can read that story later on in Acts chapter 16, and as that team of four church planters left this area in Acts chapter 17, behind them is a little church now. It's a little, a little community of faith, this fledgling community of faith. It's a, it's a, a wonderfully, strangely diverse membership so the first person who comes to faith in Philippi is a clothing designer named Lydia. She's probably rich. Her house is going to be the gathering place for worship gatherings at that point. Some of her family came to faith, some of her employees. So her household employees, maybe those who worked in her fabric shop, they came to faith that day. And then a prison guard came to faith. So Lydia, her household, a prison guard uh, who tried to commit suicide just the day before, that prison guard comes to faith. A, an ex-demoniac slave girl who was the town fortune teller, she came to faith, and that's the beginning of the Church of Philippi. I mean, just, that's, their, that's their little membership in that town as the gospel plants a church there. A number of commentators point out that to read the book of Philippians is to, is to see the sense in which this became Paul's favorite church. This was, this was a dear church to the Apostle Paul. There's no other place, no other church that he writes with such affection, with such uh, awareness of his personal well-being. He is letting them know his, his state of mind, his state, his condition, and so forth. But in contrast to Corinthians where he talks about his condition, but he's trying to argue for them to make room in their hearts for the Apostle Paul. No, here he knows there's room in their hearts for him. Because this church has supported him in the midst of great distress. So when the gospel, right after they left town, apparently they ran into some bumps and snags in gospel ministry. And Paul said, the only church that was holding on to us and holding on to the work of the gospel was you, Philippi. He says that in chapter 4, verse 15. We're going to put it up on the screen here. You Philippians know that in the early days of the gospel, when I left Macedonia... No church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. In other words, no one was more all in than Philippi. And they didn't just send checks. They sent people. When Paul was thrown into prison in Rome, they heard about this and they sent Epaphroditus. We'll read about that in chapter 2. They sent Epaphroditus 800 miles over to where Paul is so that he could bring care packages and he could feed the man. Because the Roman prison system didn't give you, you know, three hot meals and a cot and a blanket and all that stuff. That's why Paul... At the end of his life, in 2 Timothy, he says, Timothy, I need you to come here, and when you come, please bring a coat, because it's winter and it's cold, and the Roman prison system says, oh, you're cold, let me get you a blanket. That, that's, not, that's not the way it was. Epaphroditus kept the man alive while he was in prison, providing for his needs. This was a dear church. Epaphroditus almost loses his life, incurring a sickness himself as he's caring for the Apostle Paul while he's in prison. So, so now I think we're, we're a little better prepared with a little bit of that backstory. We're, I think we're better prepared to read these opening words and understand these aren't just apostolic pleasantries. This isn't Paul, you know, it's a, it's a protocol thing in the first century. You're supposed to say all these nice things. And so he's just kind of, it's not a form letter. 
This isn't, you know, let's take out Ephesus and put and plug in Philippi or take out Colossae, plug in Philippi. This is a unique church, and he speaks with unique relationship to them. So follow along if you would. Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers, and deacons. So you get the whole structure of the church. You get the membership, and you have the overseers, the elders, and the deacons. Verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer because of your partnership. It's the, it's the Greek word koinonia, your fellowship, your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Indeed, it is right for me to think this way about all of you because I have you in my heart and you are all partners with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how deeply I miss all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment so that you may approve the things that are superior and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. If all your prayers for this church last year were answered, what would have happened? Would our worship be marked by deep reverence for God? Would it be marked by profound joy in Christ? Would there be a sense that there's joy pent up in our hearts as we worship Jesus and remember the gospel? When it comes to nurture, would we resemble Jesus? Would we look more like him, reflecting his character because the spirit is, to borrow from Philippians, working in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure? Would, when it comes to our mission, would we see the triumphs of God's grace among the nations? Would we see God plowing into new places in our city and reaping a harvest even around the world among the nations? Would Would there be any people groups because of the way that you prayed last year? If the Lord answered all your prayers this past year, would there be any people groups in the world that are no longer unreached? And what I'm asking here is do we share a passion for the glory of Christ? Are we all in for his glory among all nations? Is that... Is that the banner we march under? Are we all in to live to the praise of his glory, to spread the knowledge of his glory to every generation and to every nation? Are we on mission as a church? And equally important, are we on mission together? 
not disparately like, you know, many streams just going in whatever direction we want to go in, but is there a sense of current, a channeling of, of God's work in, in our lives and in our hearts as a, a membership that's sending us forward into the city and into the world for the great name of Jesus to be known? This is in your notes. Philippians makes clear a lack of togetherness endangers the mission. So it can't just be mission. It has to be mission together because a lack of togetherness endangers the mission. Actually, several things can endanger the forward progress of the gospel. The first thing right here in this little list is an imprisoned apostle in chapter 1. In other words, it becomes clear when you read chapter 1 that Paul knows these believers have been shaken by the fact that he's in jail. The one who brought us the message of the gospel 10 years ago is in prison And we're seeing in chapter 1 as we move along into that next week and the week after that Paul doesn't want the fact that he's in jail to to tell them to tap the brakes. He wants them to move forward with the proclamation of the gospel. He wants it to add confidence to their proclamation of the gospel. And then in chapter 2, he addresses, I'm going to hit these all at once, so just have your pen ready. Ready? So pride and grumbling. A lack of togetherness endangers the mission. Pride and grumbling and then legalistic teaching in chapter 3. And then catfights between co-workers in chapter 4. Paul literally says these two women who are fighting, Euodia and Syntyche, they they, they were co-workers with me in the gospel. And yet they're fighting like cats and dogs. Can, can, Can we get these women to come together in the mission of the gospel? In other words, these can be hindrances to the forward movement of the gospel. We can... We can easily think superficially about missional momentum in the church, right? As if, you know, it's, it's all about missions programming. It's, it's all about that sort of thing. You know, we don't have the right methods in place or, you know, we need to do the short-term rollout uh, a little bit differently or communicate better, that sort of thing. No, it's, it's not, you know, the, the idea can be is if our missions programming is right, then the mission will just be thriving in our hearts and through our church. And if the missions programming is wrong, then there will be a, a lack of momentum. Put, put it this way, though. The, the reason that the Apostle Paul spends so much time talking about humility, saying, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, who took on the form of a servant, is because the greatest threat to missional momentum in the church is pride. It's not figuring out, you know, that we have an inadequate training mechanism for evangelism. That, that is not the ultimate reason or the biggest hindrance to missional momentum. The problem isn't mainly wrong methods, it's wrong hearts. That's why Paul goes to the heart. He is is shepherding the heart of this church, not tweaking methodology. It's a much bigger issue. In other words, when Paul brings correction to each of these areas in, in these chapters, when he brings correction to pride, to grumbling, to legalism, to infighting, he hasn't left the subject of missions behind. He is addressing the issue of missions from the start of this letter. It's not just mission, mission, mission. It's together, together, together. It's stay low, stick together, move forward with the gospel. And in these opening verses, I think we see, and are going to see, by God's grace this morning, three fruits of gospel partnership 
in the local church which make mission sustainable for the long haul. If we want our mission as the Church of Brook Hills, and we're not just doing history work here, if we want our mission as a local church to be sustained for the long haul, we need to row together toward these things. Number one, gospel doctrine. Gospel doctrine or gospel teaching. So right under that, just fill in this note. Our partnership is grounded in truth. Our partnership is grounded in truth. Look at verse 5. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, this message of the gospel is the locus of the fellowship of the church. It is the central thing. It is the magnet that pulls the church together. Brook Hills, the glue that holds us together is above all a message. Above all, it is not an activity, it is a message primarily. Paul speaks of the church in another place as the pillar and buttress of truth, the pillar and support of truth. In other words, what is the church? The church is something that holds truth high so the world can see it. It holds truth high so we ourselves can see it and be transformed into the image of the truth that we see in God's word, but it holds it high so the world can see the beauty of the truth, the beauty of good news. Paul told Corinth, he said, I received something and I delivered that same something to you. In other words, the apostle Paul frequently thinks of himself as a courier. He is a, he is a mailman. And he receives the mail and he delivers it as he received it. The goal is not to tamper with the package, it's to deliver the package. That's how he sees it. So he says, what I first received, I delivered that same message to you. And what's the message? That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised again on the third day according to the scriptures. In other words, church people are people of that message. We are gospel people. We guard the gospel together. We gather around the message of the gospel. We sing it deep into our souls Each Sunday, that's why Paul says in Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ, that is the gospel, let it dwell in you richly. How? Sing yourself deeper into the word of Christ, into the word of the gospel. So we guard it, we gather around it, we adorn it by the way that we live. We talked about that in Titus 2 in the Life Verses series. We speak the message of the gospel wherever we go in the city, we We invest our energy and our resources as members of the church for the spread of the gospel. It's all around this message of the God. I mean, this is where the action is. It's it's around this message. We were saved by it and we're sent with it. Paul calls it God's gospel. In other words, this gospel isn't, it's not ours to shape. We didn't create it. Rich Mullins used to sing this song where he says, I did not make it. No, it is making me. It is the very truth of God and not the invention of any man. The gospel was not invented by man. It was given to us by God. It is his message. Don't mess with it. It's a read-only document. Get your hands off the editing buttons. You don't mess with it. You deliver it. And that's what faithfulness means. We take it. We deliver it. We don't tamper with it. We don't improve it. We don't make it more palatable, we make it clearer, but we don't make it more palatable, we deliver it as clearly as we know how. Verse two, this is in your notes, verse two is at the heart of our worship, nurture, and mission. 
What is our message? You ask that question, there's a great summary of our message right there in verse two. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul never tires of summarizing his message of the Christian faith by just saying, grace to you and peace from God. That is our message distilled into one statement. He says it in Acts 20, grace to you, Romans 1, grace to you, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians. What I'm doing right there is I'm just going through every letter that happens right after the Gospels. And in each one of them, Paul is saying, grace to you, grace to you, grace to you and peace from God, our Father. It's almost like you want to stop and say, do you guys say anything else? Right, can we get a fresh angle? Can somebody say this in a new way? They don't want the church to, be, to lose its message, so they just say it, just hammer it in, day after day, letter after letter, and then Peter starts writing. And what does he say? First Peter, grace to you. Second Peter, grace to you. They never wanted the churches to fall into the trap of getting off message. Look, Birmingham, if Birmingham hears that the church of Brook Hills, that we're the church that constantly beats the drum of grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's all those people talk about at the church of Brook Hills. That is not an insult. That's a compliment. (laughs) We're in good company if that's the drum we're beating all day, every day, and twice on Sunday. Look, if, if, if you're new here, This is the message we've got, and we won't search for another one. Grace to you. Grace to sinners who have offended a holy God. In other words, the the statement that's tucked into that is, we get the grace that we don't deserve. Righteous people don't need grace. The gospel's tucked into grace to you, grace to me. I get grace. Yes, you get grace. Where is it found? It's found in Jesus. It comes from God the Father in and through the work of the Son, in and through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you. Peace comes from the God at whom you were at war. You were at war with God, naturally bent away from him, naturally taking up arms against God, wanting to do life your own way, wanting to rebel against his rule over us. That's the message. Again, if you're new here this morning, I hope you hear that message this morning. I hope you respond to that message this morning that the Holy Spirit quickens, turns a light on. So you see, I get grace There can be grace for me. You know what a mess I've made of my life? Yes, yes, there can be grace for you. There is mercy that is deeper than all of our sin. The Father sent his Son to save us from our sin and its penalty. That's the message of the gospel. Jesus lived the life that we could not live. Jesus died the death we deserved to die. He came. This is the great exchange. Martin Luther talked about the great exchange. He, Jesus, came and he took what we had earned through our sin so that he could give us what he had earned through his perfectly righteous life and he gives it to all who trust in him. We don't have to work for it. We don't have to jump through hoops. We believe and it's ours. Forgiveness is ours. Eternal salvation is ours. Eternal If you're here this morning, you've never responded to that message. Oh, I pray, friend, wherever you are in this room, I wish I could look at you. Turn, trust the one Savior and hope of the world. 
And this gospel doctrine tunes the engine of gospel mission. Gospel doctrine tunes the engine of gospel mission. My, my daughter, Ellie, recently invited me to watch a, a Netflix series with her, and, um, which I tend to have mixed feelings about. The last Netflix series that we watched, it's been some time, was a, a baking show, a British baking show. And um, it was similar, it was kind of a sacrifice of praise sort of thing, you know. And um, so I'm watching it. I, it's interesting how they do what they do. I, I'm not super excited about watching people bake things. I'd rather eat things that are being baked by people, but not, not just watch it on and on and on. But, but this show, when she invited me to watch this show, I, I almost got misty-eyed because this show takes place in a car garage. And it's pretty fantastic. And the name of the car garage, we haven't watched all the shows, or so if anything bad happens in the future or whatever, don't yeah, judge us. Anyway, the, uh, the name of the garage, get this, get all the awesomeness that's here. The, the garage is called Gotham Garage, right? Just drink that in, right? <laughs> I mean, so you've got, it's me and my daughter. There's greatness right there. I just get to bond with my daughter. Me and my daughter plus Muscle cars plus Batman, right? So Gotham Garage, it's, kind of, it's all the great things all in one place. And they take these junky classic cars and they refurbish them and they tune them up and they're just gurgling there in the garage and they put the owner behind it and they just tap the gas and you just hear this thing just going nuts underneath the hood. It's, it's amazing. And I think, I think the book of Philippians is a little bit like that. Right, this is the most missionally faithful church Paul knows, but she's not above the need for a tune-up. And that's what he's doing. He's tuning up the church at Philippi for the mission. And gospel doctrine, friends, is how Paul throttles the engine of the mission of the church. He throttles it. He steps on it. He lets them hear the sound of this message that amps up the church and sends us out. So there's gospel doctrine, number two. Somebody's getting excited back there. So there's gospel doctrine, there's gospel culture. Gospel culture. So gospel doctrine creates gospel culture. Gospel doctrine informs or shapes a gospel culture. Look at this next point. Partnership creates a spirit of thankfulness. This is supposed to be a subculture in the life of the local church. Partnership creates a spirit of thankfulness. Look at verse 3. I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you. Every time I think about you, my heart is full of thanksgiving. I love that. And not only that, he says in verse 4, always praying. How? With joy. (laughs) Always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer. Why? Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So partnership creates this spirit of thankfulness. And look, that's not just happening here. The Apostle Paul is, is, is not a walking rain cloud, you know, over every church. He just looks at it, he's like, oh, disappointment there, and then what's over, oh, wow. You know, that, that's not, he's not just this walking rain cloud of everything that's wrong in the world and wrong in the church. He said, what does he say to Rome? Romans chapter 1, verse 8, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. You haven't even met us or been here. I thank God for all of you. I can't wait to get there. 
I'm already thankful. Congregation in Corinth. Corinth was a mess. What does he say at the beginning? Chapter 1, verse 4. I always thank my God for you, Corinth. Congregation in Ephesus. I wonder what he's going to say to them. Chapter 1, verse 16. I never stop giving thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. And then Paul, he models this thankfulness and he says, try this at home. You do, not just me, we're partners together in this. You be thankful. He says, give my greetings, Romans 16, 3 and 4. Give my greetings to Prisca and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their own necks for my life. Not only do I thank them, but so do all the Gentile churches. It's almost like Paul is saying, everybody on your feet, thank Prisca and Aquila. They saved my life. You guys, you might see me up front, but these guys keep the mission going. On your feet, church, thank these people for the way they live their lives. Let me ask a few questions. How do you know a church is spirit-filled? Answer, Ephesians 5, 18 through 20, says this. Be filled by the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always. A church that's filled up with the Spirit, how do you see it? How do you know it? What's the evidence? What's the litmus test of a church that's filled with the Spirit? There, you know, sometimes Spirit-filled churches are associated with all kinds of things. And Paul says, you know a Spirit-filled church by the unmistakable presence of thankfulness, always giving thanks. How do Christians talk? There's another question. How do Christians talk? Ephesians 5, verse 4. Obscene and foolish talking and crude joking are not suitable. What do you put in its place? But rather, giving thanks. <laughs> so we take this whole family of language out, and in its place, there's just thankfulness. Giving thanks, that's what we say when our mouths are open, we're giving thanks. In other words, if I blindfolded you and walked you into a room and you heard people just overflowing with thankfulness in different places, tables around the room, and you overheard thankfulness and joy, according to the Apostle Paul, you're blindfolded, you should think, this sounds like church. This sounds like what happens when the gospel doctrine creates gospel culture. When, when the gospel gets into our bloodstream, we, we overflow with thanksgiving. Here's another question for us. What's a primary motivation for missions? Answer, 2 Corinthians 4.15. Indeed, everything is for your benefit so that as grace extends through more and more people, here's the goal, it may cause thanksgiving to increase to the glory of God. A church that is strong in mission but weak in thankfulness isn't going to be strong in mission for long because that church lacks a key ingredient for sustainable mission, namely a heart that is brimming with thankfulness to God and to one another. Partnership creates a spirit of thankfulness. Next, partnership promotes the ministry of prayer. Partnership promotes the ministry of prayer. Look at verse 3 again. I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, always praying with joy. I love every word of that. Always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer. That's redundant, and it's gloriously redundant. Always praying 
always joyful in every prayer for you. And then he tells them exactly what he's praying. And we'll come to that in just a moment. He tells them exactly what he's going to pray for them. And, and he does that in other places. He does that with the congregation in Ephesus. He does it with the congregation in Colossae. It's not some prepackaged prayer. Again, these aren't form prayers where you just kind of take one name out and plug another name in. These are prayers specifically targeted to these people, these congregations. He knows them. He knows them by name. He greets them. And he prays for them. You think about our life as a, a local church. The reason that we have these, these special set-aside times for prayer in a given year is because we need God. That's the simple reason that we do these things. We need the Lord, the reason we spend time every Sunday having a prayer of intercession moment, the reason we do that every Sunday, praying together and being led in prayer, isn't because, you know, we're trying to fill up a 90-minute segment and we ran out of stuff, you know, so we just, we need some filler. That, that is not the reason that we pray the way that we do. No, we need God's Spirit working in our lives, working among us, working through us. We deeply need this. Look, fraying marriages in this room need those prayers. Weary believers need prayer. Struggling and unrepentant members and addicted members, hard to reach nations. How are we going to get this done? All that stuff is above our pay grade. We can't accomplish any of that. Our methods can't pull that off. Our mechanisms, our programs can't pull that off. God does his work. As we rely on him in absolute dependence, saying through our prayers, it is not by might. That's why we're here saying this right now to you. It's not by our might. It's not by our power. Even throughout the week, the prayers of the church are supposed to be rising endlessly, continually interceding for one another. One of the greatest blessings I hope every single member of this church experiences is that there are people in your life who are members of this church, there are people in your small group who will stop whatever they were doing and pray for you. At the drop of a hat, you send a text and they're all praying now for whatever it is that's burdening you, interceding on your behalf. That's, that's, that's a church. That's what it's supposed to be. That's what, that's what gospel doctrine creates, that kind of culture. Culture of care, support, dependence on the Lord. What is gospel culture? It's reflected in continual thanksgiving. It's reflected in a people who are dependent on the grace of God and not our own efforts. And another thing that gospel doctrine creates when it gets into our bloodstream is confidence. It's kind of confidence and optimism. Confidence in God yields optimism in the church. There should be optimism in the local church. Look, every church has problems. Why? Because every church has this thing called people. I've never been a part of a perfect church, if for no other reason, because I'm there. People are in the church, and therefore problems are in the church. Paul, and Paul, hear me, because I'm about to say something that's maybe going to be shocking or off-putting. So hear what I'm saying here. Here's the qualifier. I'm not going to say it again. Paul is going to address problems in Philippi. So there, I said it. He's going to address problems in Philippi, but, and you felt it coming, 
he calls this whole thing in advance. He calls it all in advance in verse 6. He says, God has started something here, and he's going to finish it. There is this irrepressible optimism. In other words, it's, it's almost like he writes the W on the blackboard before the team takes the field. He just says, I'm just going to write this now, and then we're going to slap the, the header on the way out. Right? He, he calls it in advance. Are we more impressed by God's ability to build his church or the church's ability to mess things up? Where is our focus? There are, there are Christian bloggers who, to me, it's, it's almost like, to put it very bluntly, are ambulance chasers. Right? It used to be my favorite genre of Christian writing was that sound, where you always hear sirens. Everywhere they look, there's just, oh, sirens, oh my goodness, what is going on over there? And, you know, write a blog, write a book, you know, shout it down. It's just sirens going off in all directions. The article or the book should come with a siren, you know, a little battery-powered siren for everybody who's reading it. Because every page that you turn in that article or that blog or that book, every page could be summarized in four words. The sky is falling. And what the sound of the sky falling depends on what's going on that particular day or in that particular quarter of evangelicalism. But the sky is falling is the report all the time, everywhere you look. You know what what tempers that kind of alarmism? Church history. (laughs) Buy a decent church history book and read it and drink some chai and apply an oil of your choosing and chill out. Stuff has happened before. Jesus can build his church. Calm down. Turn the sirens off. It's going to be all right. We're going to address the problem, but it's going to be all right. Can we just, everybody, calm down, right? Paul isn't frantic. Are there problems in the church today? Yes. Pick a sector of our church, Are there problems? Yeah, just like there were in Philippi. But Paul isn't frantic. Philippians doesn't come with sirens at every chapter. Oh, I wonder what uh, chapter one's going to sound. Blue, blue. I wonder what chapter two. Blue. It's It's not full of sirens. Why? Because the work that God has begun will be completed. He writes the W on the wall before the team takes the field. The success of the gospel mission isn't ultimately riding on Philippi becoming awesome. Philippi figuring everything out. Philippi or the Church of Brook Hills becoming the perfect church. Why? Because God doesn't revoke his sovereignty. Why doesn't he revoke his sovereignty? To put it plainly, because God isn't dumb. He's smart. Right? That's the simple way to put it. He's smart. That's the understatement of the year, right? He is sovereign and he is wise and because he's sovereign and he's wise he didn't install two steering wheels on the world one for him and one for us one for him and one for satan one for him and one for insert your favorite nemesis here as long as the gospel is preached paul will say this in a moment as long as the gospel is preached i rejoice but paul it's a mess down here in philippi is the gospel being preached? I thought you said the gospel's being preached. It is. Then I rejoice. The gospel's being preached. We're good. 
Why? Because the gospel is the multitasker. The gospel is God's power for salvation. The gospel is the catalytic force for global missions. When the gospel gets into the heart and into the bloodstream of the members of the church, you won't need to raise your voices to get people to share the gospel. You won't be able to stop them. Why? Because Paul says, the love of Christ constrains me. The love of Christ compels. Paul is calling it in advance. I am sure of this, verse (laughs) 6, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Is that long enough? He's going to carry it all the way to we see him in the sky. Jesus will inherit the nations. You know, we recite the Great Commission Sunday after Sunday, and we'll recite it before we leave here, but we we can go ahead and write the W on the blackboard before we leave the room. The question is, do you sound like Philippians 1.6? Or do you walk through this life with a siren going off? Everything that's before us, just, just set off the sirens, right? Cynicism, friends, Please hear me. Cynicism is man-centered theology. Cynicism is man-centered theology dressed up as discernment. God-centered theology is fundamentally optimistic. How so? Because when God is at the center of our thinking, we remember something that is basic but is really, really important, and it's this. The throne of the universe is a one-seater not a two-seater, and God sits on it, and he sat on it yesterday, and he's sitting on it right now, and he'll be on it tomorrow. That's the fact, and he won't push over to make room for you or to make room for me or anybody else, and we couldn't push him off that throne if we tried. And look, friends, I couldn't give you better news this morning than that. The throne of the universe is a one-seater, and God is on it, and he's not moving off it. Gospel doctrine, gospel culture, and finally, gospel renewal. I'll move through this more quickly. Look at Paul's prayer in verse 9. I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment so that you may approve the things that are superior and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is in your notes. True knowledge and discernment leads to love. True knowledge and discernment leads to love. You, you think about the New Testament writer James who is, who is refreshingly candid, right? He is, he is rather direct in the way that he writes. And James basically says there's a sniff test. There's a sniff test for true discernment and true wisdom. Here's what he says it is. James 3.17 The wisdom from above is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering and without pretense. Those words, those are like, you know, the bomb-sniffing dogs. If you've ever been in the airport and you see the the beagle, you know, the bomb-sniffing dogs. But, But if you will... The dogs in in James chapter 3 verse 17, they're searching for biblical wisdom. And when wisdom and knowledge are accompanied by characteristics of peaceable, compliant, 
full of mercy, gentle. They're yelping like crazy. They're saying, we found wisdom. Here's wisdom. Here's discernment. Here's true knowledge. We found it. Now, Paul doesn't allow this, this disconnect between love and discernment. For Paul, the loving Christian is the discerning Christian and vice versa. The discerning Christian is the loving Christian. They, they mutually prove one another. Next point, true change grows out of gospel grace, not religious zeal. Gospel grace, not religious zeal. He prays in verse 11, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus. <laughs> through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul is gonna address this in more detail in chapter three when he contrasts the sort of look at us, drum banging righteousness of religious leaders and he contrasts that with true circumcision, with the inward transformation brought about by the Spirit of God. Paul is praying toward this this gospel-driven, grace-enabled sanctification, grace-enabled change. And finally, true Christianity fixates on one thing, God receiving glory. God receiving glory. Those last words in verse 11, to the glory and praise of God. In other words, all these three things that Paul is praying for, he says, I want this to happen to the glory and the praise of God. Paul gives this church one all-consuming motivation for everything. Look, here's the danger for us. Don't, don't disconnect. Here's the danger for us. If Philippi engages the mission of the gospel, if Brook Hills engages the mission of the gospel as we plant churches around the world, and if we beat our chests as if we've done all this stuff, we've missed the whole point. There's one reason Ultimately, there is one reason Paul, Silas, Luke, and young Timothy walked into Philippi 10 years before Paul writes this letter. And they did this ultimately because the glory that belonged to Jesus Christ was being given to something else. And they couldn't stomach that. They couldn't imagine Jesus not receiving the praise that he deserves. It was all about the glory and praise of God. Their approach to gospel ministry was, you might say, simple. Two questions, write them on the board, two questions. Where in the world are the places where the church already exists? And so they they write that down. Here are the places in the world, and they say, well, what do we do about that? Well, let's make sure they have elders, and let's encourage them in the faith. Next question, where in the world are the places where the church doesn't exist? And they wrote that down, and what do they say then? Let's go there next. <laughs> Let's take the gospel to those places, right? Why? To the glory and praise of Jesus so that he can be exalted among all nations. Brook Hills, are we all in for that? Are we all in for all nations? What does our praying say about the depth of this thing we're doing here as a local church? What does our giving say about our commitment to invest in the work of the gospel both here and around the world? What is our going and sending looking like, sending of workers into the field of the harvest? Are we leaning into this purpose as a church or are we coasting? That's why Paul needs to tune up the church. He doesn't want to see them take their foot off the gas. He wants them to move forward. I'm praying, friends, I'm, and I hope you'll join me. I am praying that this series isn't just all of us sort of on the observation deck looking at history. 
I'm praying that the Spirit does a number on us. That transformation begins to happen. That he fills our hearts with new holy fire (laughs) for the glory of Jesus among the nations. That he fills our hearts with fresh joy that we know the gospel and the joy of the prospect of sharing it with others. And that I'm praying that one of the upshot, one of the consequences of this is just members around this room, we start leaving here and telling people right here, like don't even need to hop on a plane yet, just right here in the restaurant, in the coffee shop, in, at Thanksgiving, wherever we might be, we're just ready. It's just on the end of our tongues. Can't wait to turn the conversation in that direction. I'm praying that God by his spirit will put the together in our mission. That, that we won't just do the mission. You know, you do your mission thing over there, I'll do my mission thing over here. But he'll put the together in our, our mission. That there will be spirit-directed channeling of our gifts and callings and resources for the spread of the gospel to every generation and every nation. Are we all in for that?